Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We want to wish you a happy Advent and Merry Christmas this week. And in this episode, the guys will be continuing their discussions on types of the nativity. And here they've reached the New Testament, and they are going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew and the birth of Jesus. Before we get into the episode, though, we have a quick word from Peter Lightheart to invite you to join us in our work of renewing the church. The church and the world need Theopolis now more than ever. The last two years have been years of upheaval. The COVID pandemic and the aftermath and the response of the pandemic have overturned many of our assumptions about how our world works. There's confusion over the last few years about populism and nationalism. Churches are divided about the pandemic. Churches are divided about the political situation. And there's increasing pressure on Christians to conform to the anti-Christian cultural norms that surround us. It feels like the world is cracking apart. The world is going crazy and we're surrounded by fear and despair and pessimism. Theopolis has a clear vision for the present and for the future. We want to train the sons of Issachar who know the times and know what should be done. The key to the future is strong, vibrant churches. Churches that provide family structures for the members of the churches. Churches that are like the city of God. Churches that are the nation, the people of God. Churches that are deeply rooted in scripture in all its beauty and depth and power. Churches that worship with vigor and joy, singing psalms and gathering around the Lord's table. Churches that carry out the mission of the church with service and witness and cultural transformation. Above all, Theopolis has a hopeful vision. The church is the light of the world, reflecting the light of Jesus, and the light overcomes the darkness. The church is the spring of living water that refreshes the dry land and turns the salt water fresh. The church is the body of Christ, who is the triumphant Savior. Theopolis doesn't offer a program or an agenda for surviving the times, but for victory in the midst of challenging times. Please support us, because the church and the world need Theopolis now more than ever. All right, we do hope that you will partner with us. And we thank you so much for supporting us. If not financially, then by just listening to this podcast, watching our videos, sharing our articles, it all does so much to build up the kingdom. And we pray you have a Merry Christmas. And with that, here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Matthew chapter one and the birth of Christ. Welcome to the Theopolis podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes and his uh, assistant are in the background recording everything and making sure everything will be smoothed out and will be uh, available to you. Uh, Thank you for listening to the podcast, and we wish you a happy Advent. Uh, We pray that your Advent has uh, been a joyful one and that you're rejoicing in the Lord's good gift of his son, Jesus, during this season of celebration. Uh, To celebrate on the podcast, we've been doing a series of studies in uh, types of the nativity. Uh, we've spent uh, several weeks looking at birth stories in the book of Genesis, 
uh, which are typological birth stories that are pointing ahead to the miracle birth of Jesus, especially in the New Testament. And last week, we started another phase of this series. Uh, We went from Genesis and skipped ahead to the gospel stories. uh, And we started looking at the gospel stories and how the gospel stories of the the accounts of the birth of John and Jesus both are uh, alluding to and echoing stories of births from the Old Testament. So even though we're now in the New Testament, we're still looking at the types of the nativity and how those types and shadows of Jesus' nativity are being used uh, and how they how they figure into the way the gospel writers uh, record and recount uh, the early life of Jesus. Uh, last time we looked at the first chapter of Luke and specifically focused on the announcement of John's birth to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And this week we're going to flip backward to the gospel of Matthew, uh, which is one of the accounts of the birth of Jesus. And we'll be looking at that. And then next week we'll be looking at the birth of Jesus as it's recorded in Luke's gospel. But just to set up the story in Matthew, as I lay out in my commentary on Matthew, I think Matthew is organized uh, as a a kind of grand retelling of the story of Israel uh, with Jesus in the role of Israel. And Jesus is passing through the different phases of Israel's history. uh, And he's the faithful Israel who is doing everything obediently. He's obeying his father rather than rebelling against his father. And he's also experiencing the opposition of Israel. He's, he's taking the reproach of his the reproaches that Israel loaded up on Yahweh. He's taking those reproaches on himself uh, and bearing them. Ultimately, he bears them to the cross and rises again as a new Israel uh, and as the foundation stone for a new temple and as the beginning of a new people of God. Uh, but that storyline, I think, is signaled for us a couple of times in the early chapters of Matthew. Uh, I think the very first phrase of Matthew's gospel hints at this typological storyline that Matthew's going to recount. The first phrase in the Greek is Biblos Genesios, or book of the Genesis, or book of the genealogy, as it's translated in my New American Standard. But it's uh, basically the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes into his genealogy, a patterned, numerologically patterned genealogy. But the fact that the book begins with that phrase, uh, Biblos Genesios, book of the Genesis, uh, book of the genealogy is an indication that we're in the, we're, we're in the realm of Genesis. Uh, and then we're going to move, as we go through the first few chapters, we're going to move out of the book of Genesis. And Jesus is going to be reliving the history of Israel uh, in Egypt, uh, the slaughter the, the slaughter of the innocents. He's going to relive the Exodus, his flight from the uh, Egypt that Israel has become. He's going to go through the wilderness. He's going to go up on a mountain. He's going to sit on a mountain and teach about the law on the mountain. The whole opening chapters of of Matthew are following through Genesis, Exodus, uh, the wilderness wanderings and bringing Israel to Sinai. Uh, So that's in the background. We also have the the genealogy, I think, uh, prepares for the birth story in a couple of ways. I just want to highlight one way that Matthew's genealogy does that. And that's by the inclusion of several women in the genealogy. Most of it is a genealogy of male ancestors of Jesus, Uh, but there are four women mentioned. Uh, All of them have some kind of uh, checkered or uh, questionable history. Uh, Tamar is one. Tamar is the uh, daughter-in-law of Judah who dressed as a temple prostitute and uh, enticed, seduced Judah so that she could bear Judah's uh, grandson, Judah's offspring. Uh, and continue the lines. And uh, 
she becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Rahab is there, who was an actual prostitute. Uh, and after the uh, after her uh, transfer of loyalty from the king of Jericho to King Yahweh of Israel, uh, she was incorporated into the line of the Messiah. Ruth is there. Ruth is a Moabite. The Moabites had this, uh, this very uh, scandalous origin uh, with Lot and his daughters in the cave after the destruction of Sodom. One of the one of the daughters gives birth to Moab, the other daughter gives birth to Ammon. So Ruth is a Moabite coming out of that world, but then gets incorporated into the genealogy of the Messiah. And then there's, of course, Bathsheba, uh, who is uh, seduced by David and then becomes the mother of Solomon. So we have these types of women, we have these women that are uh, types of, I think, types of Mary, in at least this respect, perhaps in other respects too, but at least this respect, they all have this kind of scandal attached to them a scandal that is uh, overcome, the Lord overcomes and brings them into the, uh, the, the very family of the Messiah. Mary, uh, at the beginning here, is found pregnant before she and her husband, her betrothed rather, Joseph, come together. She's found to be with child. Joseph is warned in a dream, we'll find, but uh, this, this could be a scandal. You know, he's, they're betrothed if uh, she's been uh, with another man and is pregnant by another man, that this is going to be a scandal and it could, uh, it could break up the engagement and end any prospects of marriage. So Mary is in that, uh, Mary's uh, conception is in that, set up in that realm of all these other scandalous conceptions and births that are found in the genealogy. Uh, and again, uh, the, Lord's, the Lord overcomes whatever potential scandal there is with Mary, overcomes it through the righteous man, Joseph, but also overcomes it because the one who's conceived in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, since you concluded with the genealogy, Peter, I'd love to hear from James uh, more about this genealogy, particularly interested in why he thinks it's stylized like it is with three sets of 14, um, and maybe other comments he has about its, its character in relation to the genealogies in the Hebrew scriptures. Oh boy, I, I I I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll we'll all have things to say on the on the genealogy. I mean, what, what, one interesting feature on it, to my mind, which kind of uh, almost complements what Peter has been saying. Um, Peter has stressed like Gentile inclusion into the genealogy, and that's totally there. Um, but at exactly the same time, it feels to me that there is Jewish exclusion going on. So, you know, it begins with. Abraham, the father of Isaac and, and, and Jacob. You know, so, so this is all Israel. But then we get the mention of the father in verse two here, the father of Judah and his brothers. Um, and so it's it's as if all the 12 tribes are mentioned there. But verse three then just picks one to drill down into. You know, it just continues in Judah's line. His line in particular is singled out. And he's then referred to as the father of Perez and Zerah. Um, and Zerah's line goes nowhere. You know, it ends in um, Carmen and Achan. It ends in the uh, sin of, of Jericho. And, and so that's kind of um, uh, another dead end, you know, a line that's cut out. And then obviously it carries on going down. And it's almost like with each generation that passes, it's kind of uh, selecting a narrower and narrower um, subset of, of Israel, I, I suppose. You, you can come down to... Um, verse 11 when it talked about um jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation i mean most of those brothers 
actually die and, and it's just Jack and I who survives and so it feels to me that hand in hand with the inclusion of various Gentiles is the cutting out of various Israelite branches and of course you know Matthew is going to take all this up where he talks about how people from the north south east and west are going to be sort of invited to come and sit at Abraham's table um, but many of the natural branches um, are going to be excluded. The structuring of it also seems to involve a period of ascent, then descent, and then ascent again. There's the 14 generations that go from Abraham to David, the great king, and the kingdom reaching its height at that point. And then a period of descent in 14 generations that go down into Babylon at the end, and then ascent from Babylon up to the Christ. Um, we might think of other ways in which um David is coded into this. You can think about the way in which 42 is a time times and half a time in months. Um, also think about the ways in which it um, presents at the very end the character of Joseph in a way that recalls um, the Joseph of the Old Testament, that he is the son of Jacob and then he ends up having dreams. He leads his family down into Egypt. And there is this setting up of the book, as we see going through, for a broader um, parallel between the story of Christ and the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, I'm sure you were alluding, alluding to this, Alistair, but one of the codings of uh, David into the genealogy is the use of 14. Uh, uh, Davis and Allison in their commentary on Matthew point this out that 14 is the, the numerical value of the name David. Uh, and you have uh, three sets of 14 generations in this. You also have the, you know, the six times seven that leaves you expecting a, a, a final kind of Sabbath, Sabbath of the Sabbath. Uh, but you, the 14 is a, has a Davidic um, connection. I think that David is also the four. I don't, I'm not going to take time to count them, but I think that David is also the 14th name on the list of names here in the, in the genealogy. So you have that kind of subtle numerological thing. One of the things that I, I found fascinating when I worked on this uh, in my commentary is the fact that the name of Jesus begins and ends the genealogy. Uh, it's the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So it's uh, working back. Words. And then from Abraham on, it moves on uh, forwards to Jesus, who is called the Christ in verse 16. So uh, Jesus is presented in the genealogies as, uh, in some way, as both the Alpha Israel and the Omega Israel. He's the, he's the one who's the initiator of the whole genealogy, the whole, um, the whole history of Israel. And he's also the climax, climax of that same history. I also wonder whether there is anything about the number 14 more generally in places like Genesis, you have the fact that Ishmael was 14 um, when Isaac was born. So Isaac comes, as it were, in that 14th year. Um, again, Jacob spends 14 years in um, serving for his two wives. We have 14 years again with the period of um, plenty and famine in Egypt. And it seems maybe there's something more going on there. Yeah, that feels very relevant to me. And just to come back to Peter's comment, I, I, I like very much that idea in, in which the um, it begins and ends with um, Jesus, the, the particular genealogy. And um, it 
brings to mind when you sort of couple that with um, the appearance of the star, um, you know, against the backdrop of this genealogy, um, just brings to my mind, at least, the way in which the whole New Testament closes. Um, uh, where are we? Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so all those things seem to be summarized there. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's very good. Uh, the root and the fruit of David. He's the, he's the one supporting the tree, and he's also the, the main fruit of David, which I, I think that um, that's part of what I think structures the whole Gospel of Matthew. It's uh, Jesus as Israel, as the final and most faithful, and, and the faithful Israelite, but it's also Jesus as the, the God of Israel, who is uh, going through the history of Israel and as it were, re-experiencing God's lament and anguish over his people as, as his people continuously oppose and resist him. Yep. And there are no more genealogies after this, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Um, and as James was talking about, the exclu- everybody's excluded. It seems like the whole purpose then of Israel, the seed line people, was to come to this point. Israel is now reduced to one. Jesus is the faithful Israelite, um, and the, all the genealogies end with him. Yeah, in a sense, Matthew and Luke's genealogies sort of um, they have opposite functions. In that Matthew's is a progressive narrowing down, like you're just saying, Jeff, and whereas Luke's is almost you know as you ascend up the genealogy, it's getting kind of less and less specific in some way, in, in the sense in which you know. Jesus is a descendant of Noah, but then we all are. Um, and, and so that seems to have the sense of kind of including all mankind there, whereas here is narrowing down particularly on the one in whom the promise is, is going to be fulfilled. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I wonder where we fall on this debate about Matthew and Luke's genealogy. Uh, is Matthew a genealogy of Joseph and Luke a genealogy of Mary? I mean, per- personally, I-, I just tend to think that these are different genealogies of Joseph. Um, so like in a messy world, which Israel was, where you have leveret marriages and all sorts of different things, you can trace a genealogy back in, in different ways. And I take Luke's just to be a um, a lesser known um, genealogy of, of Joseph um, due to something like an adoption or a, a leveret marriage. And um, I think we probably shouldn't be surprised by that kind of thing. I mean, even if you think of just Matthew's genealogy, we know from the Old Testament different directions um, in which that could go. You know, if, if we think of Boaz, um, we, we, we have there his ancestry. Um, but, you, you know, from um, the descendant of Boaz from Obed, you could equally have gone up via Naomi's ancestry. You could have said, well, Boaz provided uh, um, the continuation of Elimelech's line, and you could have traced that up. And I I think these these are just different ways myself of tracing Joseph's um, human genealogy. We could also maybe think about the ways further to James's point, that you could measure the line of succession, which is very closely related to the line of genealogy, but 
it's distinct from it as well. There'll be certain people who are skipped over or left out. There'll be others who um, are included um, that would not necessarily be included in other listings. It's interesting that we have here a genealogy beginning Matthew's gospel, but then when Mary is pregnant, she's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So this kind of end around the genealogy, we, we talked about this in the last episode that the spirit is uh, doing something unique here at the beginning of the gospel story. Uh, the spirit is giving children in a direct way. That's at least said in a direct way that it, that it wasn't in the old Testament. Uh, but this, the Spirit is obviously entering into and working within uh, this genealogical history, uh, but still doing a, a new initiative within that, within that genealogy. Mm, right. I wonder what you guys made of the actual naming scene of Jesus here, so sort of skipping on towards the end of chapter one. I was interested in this way in which Jesus is obviously given the name, Jesus in verse 21, because he will save his people from their sins. And yet that is fulfilling the fact that they will call his name Emmanuel. And um, I was trying to think about that and work out what's going on. And and kind of the idea I came up with is is something like this. Um, Names, it seems to me, without any context, can be interpreted in in all sorts of different ways. I missed the end of it, but last time you guys were talking about the birth of Benjamin, and that seems to be to me to be like a, a nice example. He's given the name um, Ben Oni, and you know the word own can have quite different senses in in Hebrew. It can refer to sorrow, um, but it can also re- refer to someone's strength. It's often used um, in connection with the firstborn and, and the continuation of a line. And it, it seems to me that when um, Benjamin is given that name, Benjamin. That's not just a randomly chosen other name. It's a particular interpretation of the name Ben-Oni, like a, a reinterpretation of it, or even a dif- different aspect of it, you might say. And I kind of wonder if that's something of what's going on here. Um, Jesus is coming in response to the prophecy to do with Emmanuel, you know, to do with God's presence. But Obviously, God's presence in Israel could be, for Israel, a good or, or you could say a bad thing. You know, I mean, having God with you was a, a, an immense blessing, but it, it also carried some serious responsibilities and resulted in punishment and plagues and so on in, in uh, Le- Leviticus and, and thereafter. And um, in Isaiah's own prophecy, um Emmanuel seems to have this mixed um, sense. Um, God is is with them, but at the same time, coupled with that announcement of Emmanuel is the invasion of Assyria, and Ahaz is is punished for his faithlessness. And I wonder if part of what's going on here is is that God is with Israel, you know, and and um, that's the general sense. But then the specific sense is, is in the person of Jesus. Um, God is coming in a, in a saving way. Um, it's not going to be a visitation as in the visitation of your sins upon you. It's fundamentally going to be about God's saving work. Uh, I, I don't know if you've got a, a different view of what's going on there. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. The, the Isaiah the context of Isaiah is you've got this, these threats and the sign of God with us 
of Emmanuel is a sign of deliverance from those immediate threats. Um, but as you said, that the goes on to talk about Assyria in the background, and uh, and it's a response to Ahaz's uh, unfaithfulness and unbelieving, his, his unbelief, unbelief in response to the prophet. Uh, he doesn't want to ask for a sign. And uh, so, yeah, the, Assyria is going to come and Assyria is going to come like a razor and shave off all the, uh, the, the glory of, uh, of Israel. So I think, yeah, it does seem to have that double-sidedness within the original prophecy. And um, I mean, just as a general theological point, as you're saying, that, that makes sense that uh, God coming near is always uh, a threat as well as a, a, uh, um, a uh, blessing. And depending on, on how you respond to that advent and how you receive him. Would the, would designating Mary a virgin also trigger something else? I mean, if you're familiar with Old Testament imagery, it's often used to describe Israel. So Yahweh's wife uh, is alternately labeled uh, a virgin or a harlot, depending on her loyalty or faithfulness to God. So virginity seems to be used to describe like the relational behavior of the people of Israel. Paul uses it that way in 2 Corinthians 11. Um, so, uh, is, is this, you know, is this a sign, um, is Mary a symbol of the remnant faithful Israel, or is, is there, there more going on here with regard to that? Um, yeah, question. Seems to be at least that, doesn't it, Jeff? I mean, we've just obviously been looking at Luke's genealogy and there again, God begins working with a righteous couple who are blameless and, and so forth. And while he is going to rescue the, you know, the unrighteous included, it does feel that it, it's, it's the remnant, particularly the faithful remnant that he comes for. Yeah. I wonder if we often just, you know, we, we uh, run to the Isaiah seven passage and think that Matthew just pulled a single text from, you know, almost out of its context uh, to lend some, you know, old Testament support to his gospel. But if we understand the virgin conception in a more uh, narrative, you know, redemptive narrative terms, um, the, the, the sign to Israel is, of course, also the same sign to Ahaz. But um, it's a sign that the virgin plays the same role, assurance to the faithful, the virgin remnant, that the Lord would deliver. And it's also a threat to the unfaithful, the prostituted leadership, if you will, um, of the of the Israelites. That's also there in Isaiah 7. Um, so I guess I guess it's no wonder then that Mary, when she's co- contemplating her pregnancy in the light of Old Testament prophecy, would sing that the Lord has scattered those who are proud in the imaginations of their heart and brought down rulers from their throne. It's all connected, I think, with the uh, the symbolism of her being a virgin. Yeah, I think that's right, Jeff. And I'm extended too to, you know, think about what uh, what Jesus actually accomplishes. We think about sometimes think about Jesus' atoning work in a kind of abstracted theoretical sense. But what he's actually doing is gathering together a renewed Israel. He's gathering together the the remnant of Israel, the disciples and others who are with him, and then he dies on their behalf rises again uh, as their Lord. And that new, renewed Israel is what becomes the agent for 
bringing the gospel, the good news, and and resurrection life uh, to the rest of Israel and then to the Gentiles. So that the target of you know the target of Jesus' work is precisely that that remnant that you're that you're talking about. That I, I think you're right that Mary is representing that as the Virgin. Peter, as you were talking about um, uh, the birth and likening it to resurrection, it occurs to me that in the Old Testament things we've looked at so far, very often these births come against the backdrop of death, whether it's the promise that you will die in Genesis 3 or whether it's the the deadness associated with a womb. Um, uh, There is death in the background. That's very, very pronounced, isn't it, in Matthew, not, not only in the genealogy but in the massacre of the infants and and so that really has a sharp contrast here one question i have is why first of all this is a narrative that's focused upon the annunciation to joseph and it's not an announcement that the child is going to be conceived in the womb mary it's the fact the child is already conceived and that he ought not to um be troubled for that reason in taking her as his wife. It seems that when we tell the story of the nativity, we don't tend to give a lot of attention to the character of Joseph. And yet this whole narrative is one that foregrounds him throughout. Um, How could we maybe give Joseph more of his due within the story? Uh, It seems that First of all, we've already noted the significance of the genealogies. The genealogies are not those of Mary in all likelihood, but both of them are genealogies of Joseph. And Joseph is the one from whom Christ gets his title as a a son of David. It, It seems that there's a significance to Joseph in Christ's identity that can often get bypassed. And I wonder why um, did the Lord do this in the way that he did? Why did he not tell Joseph and Mary together? Why did he, um, should we see that as two distinct witnesses? Is it the fact, the fact that he didn't tell them beforehand? Um, what is the significance of the fact that Joseph only finds out later after the child has been conceived? And the unity of the couple, which is in part a cause of debate between um, many Protestants and Catholics, the nature of that union, was it a, an actual sexual union and an ordinary marriage, or was this something different? Um, that also seems to be in play here. Um, what place do you think we should give Joseph? And what do you think um, Matthew is doing with the way that he treats Joseph here? Well, it is remarkable that Joseph here is called a righteous man, uh, precisely because he's unwilling to put her to shame and resolves to divorce her, uh, betrothal being a strong legal bond at this time, divorce her quietly. Um, when uh, it, it, you know, adultery at least had a maximum penalty of, of, of death in the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew law. But he's a righteous man and decides that he's going to do this quietly. I, I wonder if Joseph actually is, as a father to Jesus, um, a type of Jesus. Um, he is a righteous husband, priest, 
protecting his supposedly fallen bride from shame and defeat. And, and that provides something of a pattern for faithful priest husband. And of course, for Jesus, um, marital unfaithfulness in scripture is an image of idolatry. We all know that. Um, so the husbands in Israel should have guarded the bride at this time from the shame that results from her idolatry. In, instead, they uncovered the bride's nakedness to every, every passerby. Um, I think that's, is that Jeremiah language? I think so. Um, so um, Joseph is surprised and delighted. He finds out his, his bride's not an adulteress, not a prostitute, but actually uh, a true virgin. Um, and that's a transition point in Israel's history. The Lord visits the virgin remnant, as we just were talking about, of his prostituted people and provides her with a faithful husband priest, which then becomes, as Peter said, the, um, the agent of salvation for the world. But jo it starts with Joseph. Yeah. That's really good, Jeff. I, I like the idea. I hadn't thought about the idea that uh, Joseph is somehow foreshadowing what Jesus himself is going to do. This, just to add to that, I mean, Jesus comes to lead an exodus. You can, you can think about that more theologically as an exodus from the realm of Satan, sin, and death, or more historically as the as an exodus of his people from the corrupted you know, demon infested Israel uh, but the first exodus in Matthew is not uh, the exodus that Jesus performs but the exodus that Joseph performs he's the one who carries uh, Jesus and Mary out of the out of the uh, away from the threat of Herod Herod is the Pharaoh of the story and Joseph is the is the Moses um, who's leading the Exodus. So I, I think, I think that's got, uh, I am, I had never thought about that, but uh, I think that's got a lot of weight to it that um, the, and that, that goes some way to answering Alistair's question that part of what we're seeing here is Joseph acting in a way that's going to, uh, uh, that sets the pattern for what his son is going to do. Alistair, you were talking in part about why, the uh, way this narrative works, why are we told, what Joseph does after um, Jesus has already been conceived. And I don't know, I'd need to sort of think this through a bit more, but there's something about it that seems to highlight the sort of the fragility uh, of the whole thing that, you know, we're not open theists, so there's no kind of risk involved in any of this, but it does feel remarkable the way in which this whole thing depends and turns on Joseph's, actions so i mean as you're going down the narrative you, you could say to yourself well you know if solomon died childless or something then jesus couldn't be born but i mean i guess that's not really true you could have um jesus born through a different descendant of david um but here it just feels from in human terms so precarious i mean what happens if joseph just decides to divorce mary quietly you know there she is, and her seed has no connection to the Davidic line. You know, what happens if Joseph doesn't flee into Egypt? You know, and Jesus is just caught up with the slaughter um, of children in Bethlehem. And it feels to me that it just emphasises the, the fragility of it all. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.